the Body Electric Podcast, episode two for Thursday, June 25th, 2015. My name is Nathan Hiltz, and my guest today is a fantastic bebop guitarist named Ben Bishop. Uh, ben just moved back to Toronto after a bunch of years playing and studying in the U.S., and I uh, had a really great time talking to him this week, and uh, I hope you enjoy our chat. Um, I would like to thank everyone that listened to episode one and who sent me feedback. Um, I think we've got about 300 listens at this point, and uh, that's totally amazing. Um, and also, before we get started, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Bruce and the guys at uh, Coffee Guitar. Uh, they're up on Bloor Street, it's a new shop, and uh, the guitar I'm playing today is uh, my Stanowski, and uh, I just had them do a fret dress uh, for me, and the guitar feels amazing, and uh, the price was really good, and I think they got it back to me in about four days, so that was really great. Um, okay, so I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, hit me up on Twitter at Nate Hiltz, N-A-T-E-H-I-L-T-Z. And um, also my website where you can hear the podcast is www.nathanhiltz.com. Hey, Ben. Hey, Nathan. How's it going, man? Not too bad. How are you? Good. I'm good, man. Welcome back to Toronto. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been how long quite you been, well. How long have you been back? I've been back uh, a couple weeks. Wow. I'm on my second temporary weekly parking pass right now, so that's, ah. that's how I judge it. Great, great. How's it feel? It's, uh, you know, it feels good, but the first few days were actually strange. I guess I've been away long enough that it doesn't feel like the home that it once was. But it's, it's, it's slowly, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it feels, it's funny, there's so many condos up and stuff that even the skyline's kind of significantly changed. You can't see the, uh, you know, CN Tower when you're coming into town now, because there's yeah, buildings yeah. I was, blocking. It really everything. feels bigger, yeah. but a little bit foreign, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm getting used to the, uh, the change from the western New York accent yeah. Yeah. back to the uh, Canadian <laughs> cool. thing. So... Um, so um, You've been doing your doctorate, right? Yeah. In the States? Did you, were you there doing your master's I as did well? do my master's there as well. Yeah. And it was all at Eastman, right? At the Eastman School yeah. of Music, yeah, Rochester. So uh, how was that experience? You know, it was great. Like any school experience, I think, uh, you know, some experiences that you have will be positive and some not so positive. And you, you try to emphasize the positive mm-hmm. or accentuate the positive. Right. Guess, That's right. Say. Nice reference. Yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, yeah, there's some great people down there, lots of great students, uh, you know, some of the professors, just amazing, you know, Bill mm-hmm. Dobbins, wow. uh, who's, you know, a great writer, ranger, composer, pianist, a lot of people actually, uh, I think a lot of people would do well to hear him play more, there, there was a club at the time, uh, when I moved there, I guess the club is sort of still there, but it's not really the same as it was, because they had a jazz policy every weekend. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the professors, uh, Bob Snyder, my guitar professor, uh, who's wonderful. Uh, let's see who else was playing there. Mike Melito, great mm-hmm. uh, drummer from Western New York. Uh, Danny Vitale, a great bass player, kind of in a Paul Chambers kind of vein. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, th- that group would actually play, I think for a while it was, it might even have been Thursday, Friday, Saturday when I got there, but then it became Friday, Saturday. I think there might have been a matinee with a guitar piano duo, and then uh, mm. they would have special guests that mm. they brought in. And they brought in a lot of my favorite players, actually. So it made uh, it made Rochester kind of feel 
like there was some stuff happening when I got there. And there is stuff happening, but as far as a jazz player is concerned, you know, like Eric Alexander would come up for the weekend, and he would usually do a workshop and then play at that club, at that rhythm section. You know, guitar players like Peter Bernstein came oh, up. Oh, wow. You know, awesome. uh, how would you, Stewart, uh, how would you say the culture is different, the culture of musicians um, in Rochester compared to Toronto? Would you, would you say it's similar? Or? Um, it's tough to compare. It's so much smaller than Toronto. Right. Although for a city of its size, which including the Burbs is around a million-ish, it's, it's, it's better than most because mm -hmm. of the school and, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. But... Uh, yeah, it's very tough to compare because there's just, it's just a totally different size city. And right. I, I think uh, there's a lot of really good friendly people uh, in the scene there. Some great players, but they're just, you know, there was, at, at the time when I moved there, it really felt like there was the Strathallen Hotel. That was like the jazz venue. Right. Kind of like and the Rex of, yeah, of Rochester. Yeah. Um, and as far as sessions and stuff, I mean, when I used to live here, the, I understand the Rex wasn't always going every Tuesday. There was a time where they, kind of, they took some time off from yeah. it and you know, and then it came back with Chris Gale hosting yeah. and uh, it sounds great. It's amazing now. Week. So yeah, it's really good. Yeah. yeah. So there wasn't quite like the place to jam like that. Of course there's jamming that happens at the school, but it's not quite the same as being out in the public eye. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean it's very hard to compare to Toronto. What about stylistically? Um I guess of the people that are playing, that were playing those gigs, there was definitely a preference for, uh, you know, a blue note, hard bop kind of thing coming out of, you know, Sweet. Forest Silver, Kenny Dorham, like that kind right. of stuff, uh, which is the stuff, you know, I like that stuff a lot, so, mm -hmm. you know, I had no problem with that. Um, at the school, I mean, there's a wide variety of stuff going on. Um, perhaps for a time there was maybe... Uh, bit of a reactionary movement that was, uh, you know, very anti-jazz, mm. you know, and okay. I, I used finger quotes for those of you who cannot see sound, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I think generally speaking, uh, you know, it's it's not too different than here and what went on in, you know, we went to Humber together, of course, yes. it's not so different than that. Um, the conservatory aspect for undergrad students, I think, is different, because there's far more emphasis on classical music at Eastman, but I didn't do my undergrad there, so I don't have that experience. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, um, my personal preference preference would be uh, probably a little more, in, in my opinion, maybe some of the, the undergrad programs should have a little stronger pure jazz focus. Okay. As far as just, you know, mm -hmm learning how to, uh, you know, learning tunes, uh, how do you learn tunes, that kind of thing. Right, It can right. maybe be, a, it's, a, it's a little different than how I like to do it anyway. Right, I'm not sure if we said this is Eastman. Yeah, this is Eastman, yeah. School but it's a great program, and I mean, there's so many great players uh, across the board, it's, that level is high, mm. so. Cool, well, let's play a tune. Sure. Um, I'm gonna turn off this fan. Okay. And I'll cut out this part.
stays off. I'm not sure if other people share that thing or not, or if it's just for me. Okay. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how loud that'll be. But anyway. Okay. So what do you want to play? But love letters? Love letters? I don't know that oh, one. you don't know that one? No. About uh, Gone with the Wind. Perfect. See how loud you are compared to me. Pretty close. Right? Pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just so our listeners know, um, Ben's going to be taking the first solo and the melody of all the tunes that we play today, so you can tell who's playing when, because we're both pretty traditional, right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Straight on. Yeah. Let's go. One, two, one, two, three, four.
beautiful. Yeah, likewise. Nice solo. I wish I didn't try to copy your uh, no man, you're octaves in your uh, you're killing that. I wish I was more warmed up. Yeah, it was good. Nice man, sounding great. Yeah, that that uh, I mean, Wes's solo on Gone with the Wind is truly one of the greatest guitar solos ever. Yeah, in my opinion, like yeah, the perfect. It's just so perfect. I mean, it just unlimited. It's amazing. Yeah, and and Wes in general. I mean, mm. you know. Maybe people think it's a cliche, but I mean, the man was that good. He was that good. Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of sucks that uh, he was taken from us uh, at such a young age. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Anytime I meet somebody who actually got to hear him, I'm just totally blown away. Mm. And I've never heard anybody say that he was less than just totally mind blowing to hear in person. Cool. Um, okay. So um, back in Rochester, you had an organ group, right? Yeah. Is that, is that yeah. Right? Um, my good friend, uh, pianist and organist Jeff McLeod, from Regina, but now uh, living here. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we got a group together um, soon after I got to Eastman. I guess it, it's funny how I met Jeff in the first place, because he actually went to Humber for one year. I always forget if it was 2003 or 2004, but really? we were there at the same time for one year. Huh. And, you know, he, he, didn't, uh, he already had a degree, I believe, in music ed that he had got out west. So he basically just came out here to go to Humber because the faculty was so good. It was all the best players and stuff. Right. And just, you know, for his own interest because he loved playing jazz. But he wasn't actually intending to uh, get the diploma or anything. Right. And right. I, I apologize for this squeaky strap Oh, here. don't worry. Yeah, I think my amp is crackling a bit yeah. too. So my strap sorry needs for all the oil. cracks and all the noise. No, it's fine. <laughs> We're sweating it out in here. I yeah. turned off the air conditioning. So, uh, Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So anyhow, yeah, we got this group together, uh, and he soon got, at first he got a Nord with the two manuals, uh-huh. and he had a motion sound amp. But then he found this guy in, uh, in Rochester who had a big warehouse full of organs and stuff, and uh, he ended up getting an A100 and a Leslie. And uh, yeah, so we, we ended up starting this group because we both loved that kind of sound. Uh, and eventually there became, a, there was an ice cream shop downtown, frozen custard, in fact. This is sort of a Rochester tradition, this place, Abbott's Frozen Custard. Okay. Um, so I hope they appreciate that I'm plugging them here. Yeah, but, um, sure. Yeah, they had a, a Hammond organ in the downtown location. And, and we were just like, okay, we've got to go to this place and see if we can start playing there. And so for a while we had a session going on downtown on St. Paul Street at this Abbott's. And they later brought in, uh, they had a few concerts there. I think Joey DeFrancesco played there once. No way. And uh, who else played there? I can't think of it. Some other organist played there. And uh, But anyhow, the jam was kind of short-lived. It lasted for a few months, but uh, I guess just the, uh, the fact that it was maybe a 10-minute walk from the school, not a lot of students came. 10-minute walk? Yeah, but it, it's Rochester. I mean, it, it's... It can be, feel a little sketchy downtown at night, oh, you know? really? So maybe okay. it was that. I don't know. I don't think it was as bad as people thought. Mm, it's hard to get know? people out on a weekly basis. And it's, it, it's hard, that, yeah. Uh, I struggle with all the time, yeah. you know? Yeah, but anyhow, it, yeah, it was fun to play consistently for a while, but that's quite a few years ago. I'm trying to remember if we were still in our masters at that time, maybe. Right. It's quite a while but back. But you guys uh, did some recording, right? We did a recording, yeah. yeah. And we actually had uh, Harold Danko produce it. We came up to Toronto. We recorded at Inception Sound. 
it's sort of two records, really. It's a double album. Mm-hmm. But one's like the organ group that Jeff has, and the other one was a piano trio. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I'm on that. I actually guessed on a couple tracks on the piano side, too. Oh, cool. But, uh, yeah, it's called Double Entendre. Oh. And, uh, yeah, it's a cool record. I think it came out well. Uh, my friend Andrew Miller, you probably know Andrew. Love right? Andrew Yeah, Miller. great drummer. Yeah. He's down in New York now, so he was on drums on the half that I was on. And uh, Mike Murley was on a bit of it. Oh, nice. And, uh, yeah, yeah cool. it was just a great record. It was a really good time. All right. So. And uh, what kind of music did you guys play? Um, we played... Uh, Let's see here. We, we played some Monk tunes. We do crisscross and Aranol. Uh, we do some originals. Uh, let's see here. Are there any... Some kind of more obscure tunes. I, I found this ballad called uh, Interlude by hmm. Pete Rugolo. It was a Kenton thing. Oh, no way. We did that. That's just a... I actually heard it on a Gene Christie album originally because I'm really big on singers. So, uh, yeah. So, some interesting tunes yeah. on there. Not a lot of... Uh, ones that have probably been played to death. Mm. So do you uh, spend a lot of time learning tunes? Is that something that you're into? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I do. I, I like to... But I, I'm not very analytical about it. It's funny. I, I kind of always just felt like my way of learning is mostly just listening to records and mm-hmm. figuring stuff out that way and trying to choose the records that I learn from very carefully. Mm-hmm. You know, because as we know... Uh, you know, learning when lights are low from Miles Davis doesn't learn you the whole tune when lights right. are low, like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So you know, being aware of what is really the tune and what's a good version, and mm-hmm. that's always a struggle. That was actually the most mysterious thing to me when I started playing jazz. Was like, there's all these older guys who know all these tunes. Mm-hmm. How do you learn them? Because they're not all at the time. You know, in the early, or I guess this would be mid '90s, there weren't where I lived it wasn't as easy even to get a real book at first as it is now and right. I remember just seeing like some of the weird tunes in that old real book and nobody's playing Hotel Hello or Hotel Vamp very often mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of guys like I'm from Halifax mm-hmm. where are you from originally? Edmonton Edmonton right yeah. yeah same kind of thing like often guys would be playing with the real book you know yeah. it would, like there wasn't even that thing where people learned tunes right know? Yeah, yeah, and it was the same thing where I was from, but there were a couple older guys. P.J. Perry was one of the first guys that... Um, there was this place called the Hello Deli on 124th Street in, in, uh, in Edmonton, and I used to get dragged down there by my brother, and I was just... I loved it. I, that was the first thing, really, that got me into jazz, was hearing this trio um, with who became my guitar teacher at Grant McEwen when I first went to school, Bob Cairns. He's a great guitar player. Mm. And he actually... Uh, he studied with uh, Jim Hall in 1958, I believe, no at the uh, Music Inn, you know, Lenox School of Music. Okay, School I'm of not jazz. It's, it's pretty much the f- most famous uh, early experiment in doing a jazz program. And ah. Gunther Schuller, rest in peace, who just passed away yesterday, he was uh, one of the guys involved in that. So they had John Lewis and the Modern Jazz Quartet, Oscar Peterson, uh, Ray Brown, Max Roach. Uh, I remember my guitar teacher, Bob, telling me that uh, Jim Hall was the teacher, but he had to sub out a few times, and then they'd show up to class, and it would be Tal Farlow or Jimmy Rainey or something. And uh, I didn't know any of these names at the time. But then uh, that's really how I got into it and and how I developed, uh, or, you know, some people might think regressed into the past. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I just, uh, I, I remember this one day, he brought in this big stack of records to our guitar class. And he started putting things on. He put on that uh, 
Tal Farlow album, Autumn in New York, which was unobtainable at the time. Oh, yeah. In about 1996 or whatever, 95 or something. Yeah, and, and I've never heard, I've still almost never heard anybody play Cherokee like that on guitar, mm -hmm. that version on there. And, and I, that was, that was for me, just that album and the incredible jazz guitar of Wes Montgomery. Those were mm -hmm. the guitar albums where I was just like, okay, it's almost like you can't, I would never have been able to do even what I do now had I not heard those records because I just, I was totally coming from a different place. And mm -hmm. I think, uh, I think many of us are still, you know, like uh, harmony is not so prominent in uh, a lot of pop music that we hear growing up anymore. So, mm -hmm. you know, so I think that was the thing and I always had an ear for that, at least an appreciation. I, I never knew how to do it back then, but right. I would hear those players and just be really knocked out by compared to the fusion stuff at the time like hearing somebody that plays through a sequence of chords like a horn player or you mm -hmm. know that language right right so what kind of things um have you been working on nowadays on the guitar like uh um i guess uh well this last year's been tough because i, I had a lot of exams so i've i've not been able to get at the instrument as much as i would like to it's ironic, isn't it? It is, it, but yeah. you know that's one of the things you got to get the piece of paper. That's, you know, it's just one of those things. But yeah. uh, but as far as what I like to work on, I guess I like to work a lot on uh, chord voicings, and uh, I've been getting into the block chord thing, a la Wes Montgomery, or George Shearing, <clears throat> Milt, Milt Buckner, or whoever you know. Milt Buckner. Who's yeah, that? he's he's a he played organ and uh, and piano. Uh, this is before Shearing. Mm -hmm. He lived in the 60s. There's actually an interesting uh, video on YouTube with George Benson and him jamming. Oh, really? But he was known for the locked hands kind of block chord thing okay. as well. And uh, yeah, so I, that's a tough thing to do on guitar. But I guess my, my first teacher again, he was really big on like learning, you know, learn all your drop twos and all inversions and, mm -hmm. and learn all your drop threes and you know, close voicings, and that, that was a tough school. I gotta say that that first school was still kind of the one that, uh, they demanded some crazy stuff. But mm -hmm. now I know it's not really crazy because I like all that stuff. Right. It's just right. like you gotta work hard to do this and make the guitar do this. And is he still teaching out there? I believe he's retired because, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, actually my, my buddy Jim Head, who's another great Canadian guitarist out there, and another guy who was a big inspiration to me in Edmonton because I would go out and hear him all the time. And uh, yeah, he's taken over as the head of the guitar program there at Grant McEwen. Mm -hmm. So it's in good hands. And uh, but Bob Cairns, I believe, is still he probably still plays out there. But uh, I haven't spent a lot of time in Edmonton for I don't know it's like fifteen years or something. Mm. But uh, cool. Yeah, uh, the block chord thing is is a fun fun thing to do. It's it a real is. challenge. Yeah, uh, it is a challenge. Do you have any, have you discovered anything? Is there any like sort of pointers you could give people? Yeah, you know, one thing that I, that one thing that, this isn't actually something that I, I got from like checking out West or anything, but it might have something to do with that. It's actually, one day I was hanging out with Ted Quinlan when I was going to Humber and we were watching some old videos of Ed Bickard. Mm. And I'd only had a chance to see Ed live twice before he, uh, before he retired. Mm -hmm. One time at the Yardbird Suite, probably around 99 or something, like pretty late. Mm -hmm. And then one time maybe a year or two before that with the Boss Brass, but he only had one solo 
It was very short, the whole night. So I right. was kind of left in disappointment, like, oh, they didn't feature Ed enough. Yeah. yeah. Although he took a great solo on Things Ain't What They Used To Be. It was the last solo. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think it was the last solo of the chart. last tune, and I was just like, oh, man, Ed, Ed can play the blues like oh, yeah. nobody's business. That's a great chart. That's one yeah. where he gets the solo. There's a solo part, right? The whole band drops out. I believe so, yeah. 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 It's a long time ago, and I, I don't know that record very much, but I, mm. I think that cool. he did, yeah, the band dropped out. Right. So um, here's what... Ted kind of told me this. Ted's like, yeah, I always watch Ed, and he's he's playing all these beautiful voicings mm-hmm. that when you transcribe them, this is not a quote, Ted, so I'm just uh, <laughs> paraphrasing something that we said 10 years ago. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Ed's playing all these beautiful grips, as he likes to call them, and it's all seamless. And he's not playing in a block chord style like Wes, really. It's not all eighth notes, usually. But his hand doesn't move as much as you might think. It's almost deceptive. He's playing all this stuff, but his hand's not really moving that much. Hmm. Whereas when you feel like you're playing this, you're like, oh man, this is like really hard work. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, if you were to just look at drop twos, is this, then some people might frown upon this, but I think in practice it's great. If you're going to go from like, like F minor 7, mm-hmm. you're, you're going to the next inversion, even that one, you, can, you leave the bar there. Yeah. Even though you're not actually barring on all these chords, right. you know, you can just kind of leave it barring the four strings, right? And then you don't have to as drastically change the shape of your your hand grip, right? And I think that makes it a little easier to move really quickly between chords, even though it would seem less efficient because you're barring more, uh-huh. but you're not really barring. You're just keeping the finger across because most of those grips have the need of a bar. Right. So when you're moving to the next one really quickly, you just leave it in place and then you're right. there already. Right. That's about the only That's thing cool. I can think of. Mm-hmm. So just so people know, the first voicing that he played there was just top four strings of the guitar, first fret, everything first fret. And, uh, and then he played the inversions of that and then kept the bar the whole way up. Yeah. Yeah. I could also talk about how I think about these things a bit because yeah, this please. comes from my first teacher at Grant McEwen as well. Um, I have a tendency to think of drop two voicings by the top note, and I just name them by the note on top. Because uh-huh. when you're playing yeah. block chords, you want to think melodically. So thinking about the bottom, like calling it first, second inversion, or third inversion, or root position, that's, that's accompanimental thinking. But mm-hmm. when you're playing melodically, you got to think about the top. So I think of this as being the root on top, the third on top, the fifth, the seventh. Yes. Yeah. You know? And then, you know, you can... Put the, you can add the passing diminished chords, which mm-hmm. are essentially five of that F minor chord. So mm-hmm. you're, you're tonicizing the chord, uh, and you can pass through them. It's kind of like, it's kind yeah. of big band arranging. It is, and, and that's actually another uh, breakthrough or, I had yeah. when I was at Eastman years later, because uh, this was never really alluded to at Grant McEwen, but uh, I'm sure somebody who asked the right question probably got the information, but I wasn't that guy. Um, yeah, Bill Dobbins has a book, uh, it's called, uh, I think it's Jazz Writing and Arranging, A Linear Approach, and it talks about, it basically breaks it down to when you're harmonizing things, there's really only so many ways to harmonize the passing tones and to harmonize, uh, the, the chord tones, so, mm-hmm. you know, tonicizing, uh, passing, a chromatic approach, like if you're gonna go... If you have a G going to the A flat on F minor, you could you could just move it chromatically, or yes. you can use the diminished approach. Mm-hmm. 
you know. And then he has one called the linear approach, which has to do with Ellington and Strayhorn, and you could also expand that to Gil Evans, Bob Brookmeyer, those guys, uh-huh. where basically you look at what you have and you, you determine, it's more of a trial and error approach. You might find a voicing that isn't functional, that in context voice leads well. Maybe there'll be contrary motion in the inner voices or something. So this is something that I think you can see in Ed Bickert sometimes. He'll do something. Uh, see if I can find a, an example here. I haven't. I've kind of put that away for a little bit. Uh, Your I was doing thesis a bunch of, was. I on... did. I, I wrote about Ed Bickert. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It ended up just being 50 pages because there was two different. Uh, there's two different approaches you could take to the doctorate. You could do a full dissertation, which is 12 credits, mm-hmm. and or you could do a six-credit dissertation, and then take two of these 590-level, high-level doctoral classes. Or you could do no dissertation at all and do four of those, which is what most people do. But I think I was a little bit antsy, feeling that I wasn't doing enough uh, pure jazz research. Mm -hmm. So that's why I chose to do that, but I'd already done a couple of those uh, classes. Mm. So I ended up doing the six-credit one. Is this going to be available uh, No, but I I actually plan... uh, I've actually spoken to Ed a few times since then on the phone, and uh, I think I'm going to get together with him a little bit more and maybe hone in on a couple concepts that, because the paper itself for the school was really just a broad overview. He's fairly unknown still down there. He's known in name. Everybody respects him. You always see him mentioned in lists of the great guitar players, especially with respect to chords, but uh, I sometimes find that... uh, Nobody's really heard him enough down mm-hmm. there. Yeah. They all know, oh yeah, Ed Bickert's heavy. Yeah. 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 So that's something I think being a Canadian, I decided it would be good to, you know, do something like that that's just something other people wouldn't think of. Right. And that's why I think the proposal was passed. To, yeah, to I mean, that. that's a really important piece of research. That you yeah, did. yeah, mean, yeah. That's, I think uh, there's I not been enough good about it. done on, on Ed Bickert for sure. Yeah. I mean, really, he was my man for. All through Humber, I mean, I was playing a telly. Yeah, yeah. I had an Evans amp for a while. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I really just was... Uh, in fact, I, I recently got one of those old Standells, so right. I was telling you about that. Did you smoke? No, I didn't. I, I haven't gone to that, so I, I think... Or chew gum, as yeah, you maybe, later. Yeah, maybe gum, but with the aspartame and stuff, I'm kind of trying right. to avoid that right. bad habit. Right. Um, let's play another tune. Yeah. Yeah. What do you feel like? Let's see here. Um... If I Should Lose You. Nice. Yeah. It's been a while for me. What key are we in? G minor? G minor? Yeah. This pick is kind of slippery. It's hot. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh well. Do you want uh, another pick? Do no, no, I think it's good. I'm just uh, noticing how much I'm sweating. Cool. We're going to have to talk about your gear after. Uh, yeah, after yeah for, sure. for sure. Let's take this one, like, really, just like there. Nice. Am I taking the head in? Yeah, you take okay. it. Okay. One, two, uh, uh.
Yeah. It's great. Mike what? Oh man, sweating. Oh yeah, it's sweaty in here. We're suffering for our art today. Yeah. Yeah. Alright, so um So why don't you tell me about um about your guitar and your uh I wanna know about your amps too. You're really uh deep into the amps, right? Yeah, as as I think uh you are. So got that in common. Love amps. Amps yeah. are so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyhow, I guess the, the thing about amps is that I think you can't deny if you're playing jazz that, and really any music, the amp is half of, your, half of your instrument. So if you don't treat it like that, if you just plug into whatever's there, first of all, you end up with no identity, mm -hmm. which I think in jazz we all strive to have an, uh, an identity by our tone, not just by the notes we play, mm -hmm. because all the great players had that whether they're even playing piano or something like that. You, you know, you can tell Whitman Kelly not just by the licks he plays, but, you know, the sound he gets out of the piano, or Bill Evans, or, mm -hmm. you know, Bud Powell, or Art Tatum, Hank Jones, Tommy Flanagan, all these guys. They're oh, not yeah. guitar players, but why would we not treat our instrument the same way? Absolutely. So this is part of the instrument, so I've been trying for my entire life <laughs> to find the right gear. You are devoted and, to guitar tone. Yes, definitely. That's yes, one of the yeah. that's if I had to write your Wikipedia entry, I would put that next to your photograph. Yeah, and and I, I'm proud of that, you know. Yeah. I think that's that's part of what's intriguing about playing this. And uh, right now I'm using a, I have a small fleet of old Ampeg amps that I uh, I got into originally because a friend of mine in uh, in Edmonton, an old friend who I went to school with, Bernie Schwartz, he uh, he actually was talking to me one day, and uh, I started asking him, like, okay, you were around Edmonton in, you know, the 60s or whatever. What were guitar players that played jazz using at that time? Because I, I just knew I always liked the tones of the guys back then. Particularly now, I'm, I'm into the 50s thing more than the 60s thing. Mm -hmm. That's sort of what I like. But uh, he said, you know, a lot of guys had these old amp pegs with the flip top, and... I'd never heard of such a thing, and it, for those of you who don't know, there's this uh, kind of Ampeg, they're called the Portaflex series. The famous one is the one James Jamerson uses on bass on all those Motown records. It's the B15N, but uh, there was actually a B12N, it's much more rare, but Herb Ellis endorsed it for a while, although he's never really been a model for me for tone, but um, it is a, it's an amp that isn't exclusively a bass amp. Right, right. You know, even though that's sort of why it was made, but uh, I, I like what I like about your tone is there's still brightness. Yeah, and I love sound. brightness. That's why I think if you go back to the '50s, that whole rolled off tone thing had not really started. And my favorite guitarists, tone-wise, are probably—I uh, mean, I could do a big list, but like, like Kenny Burrell, Grant Green, uh, Barney Kessel, yeah, uh, Jimmy Rainey, uh, Barry Galbraith. Johnny Smith. I don't think any of those guys really have a rolled-off tone sound. But jazz is now, it seems like a cop-out to just turn your treble off. I think it was Matheny. Or I maybe think, Jim Hall. You know, Jim Hall, Jim I think, Hall, maybe yeah, started okay. it. Yeah. Some of those guys in the 40s, mind you, um, but they're playing those old Gibson amps, and they have like a, a kind of a fat, dark mm -hmm. sound. But that might be the, the recordings to a certain extent. Because Charlie Christian's tone was not... It's fat and it's it's almost like a square wave in a yeah, way, but yeah, it's not that. it's not yeah. super dark, you know. Mm -hmm. It's not like things got in the '70s, mm -hmm. but but yeah, that's so. Anyhow, I, right now I'm playing a, a Ampeg Jet, which can be confusing because they later made 
reissues, but they're not true reissues. They actually have nothing in common with the circuit. They look similar. Mm -hmm. So this is a jet, the one I'm playing today, it's a, a J12, I think this is a J12A. I have two of them, I, and they look so similar. They look so And good. I actually swapped, I, the, I swapped the, the handles on them. And now I can't remember which one, I'd have to look inside to see which one it is, because I have a J12D as well. But on the front, or on the top, on the chassis, they only say Jet J12, but you have to look inside on the little piece of paper to see which, uh, which circuit it is, because there's a lot of changes within the J12. Mm -hmm. And this one, I believe, you know, let me look. This is a J12D. And this one, it's, uh, it's got a pair of, I'm trying to remember in this one, I think they're 7591A output tubes. Oh, okay. Which How we're in a lot of hi-fi amps in the, in the, from the 60s, really, because I think that tube was made in 1959, so nothing right. really in that could have it. How many watts would you say this amp um, is? This amp is probably something like, you know, in the 15 right. watt range. Does it work with drums, or...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with this this little pedal, I find the difference. These Ampegs, it's got just a single tone control and a volume control, and a trem control. Mm -hmm. So basically, it's as plain Jane as can be. Um, you can use it with drums depending on how loud the drummer is. It might break up a little bit, but I kind of like that. And mm -hmm. as long as it's just a hint. But I have this pedal actually, and I'm a guy who normally would not use pedals, but this pedal I chose very carefully because it's called the Linden Equalizer. Linden is actually the, the town in New Jersey where Ampeg's factory was. This wow. pedal is the EQ circuit of the flip top amps and the amps that Ampeg made that were their pro ones in the 50s that had treble and bass EQ. Bax and Dahl tone stack. It's different than Fender's in that the, uh, the two knobs don't uh, interact as much. It's more like if you turn them to 12 o'clock you're getting flat. And then you, right. can, you can actually raise and lower bass and treble without affecting the mid. It's not all scooped out. So I also notice I get less feedback with these amps and fenders because they don't have that big scoop where you're getting tons of bass and tons of treble. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, that's the only problem I have with my deluxe is mm -hmm. that bass can be a little bit out of control sometimes. Yeah, and I think the 50s, these have more in common with the earlier 50s tweed amps. Ampegs are similar to them. They're, uh, they're not like a blackface amp at all. Mm -hmm. So I like them, but this pedal gives me the EQ that the heavier amps that Ampeg made have. So I can just bring this pedal, throw it in front of my jet, and I have, a, it's like having a more expensive Ampeg that I don't want to lug around because it's heavier. I have one of those in my car right now. Right. So I won't tell you where I'm parked, but. Um, but anyhow, yeah, this, the other thing is that this, that I find Ampegs compared to Fenders, it's like the input is padded. So they're generally kind of quiet when you just plug directly into them. But with this pedal, I can just sort of give myself a boost. With, there's a volume knob. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got a battery in it, so it's active. So I can get enough volume for most drummers that play jazz with this amp, mm -hmm. as long as the room isn't huge. Right, right. And so this is my go-to amp, and it's pretty light. It's lighter cool. than my polytone was, I think. Oh, nice. I had a mini brute, too. Mm -hmm. And I think this is just a tiny bit lighter. Right, right. Sweet. And uh, you're playing uh, ES-175. Yeah, this guitar I got in 2003. I, uh, I got it back in the earlier days of eBay when you could still see everybody's email address who was the seller instead of some cryptic name or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I saw this 
1955 ES-175. Wow. I was huge into Jim Hall at the time, and also I had just discovered that Ed Bickert used to play a 175 back in the late 50s and stuff, mm -hmm. and so I was like, that's the guitar. Nice, you know, so nice. And so... Uh, it's a big risk, though, uh, buying a guitar on eBay. Yeah, at the time, though, it was a little easier because uh, you could talk to people not just through eBay. What happened is I saw this guitar. I think the starting price was 1600 Canadian. And That's it, a pretty good and, deal. And it looked really good, and the description was like, this guitar just plays like butter. And, mm. and then nobody bid on it. I watched the auction expire. I was thinking about it at the time. I had a cruise ship gig coming up, my first uh, solo guitar gig that I ever did. So I, uh, yeah, at, at the time I was just like, I don't really have the money, I'm going to Humber, I'm, I'm just living off uh, borrowed money. Right. Of course, Humber wasn't that expensive in the, you know, yeah. scheme yeah. of things. But totally. But anyhow, I ended up uh, getting a loan from my dad. Mm -hmm. I said, look, I've got this gig, it's going to easily pay back what this guitar will cost, and I think I need a good instrument to be playing nothing but guitar mm -hmm. all day long. So uh, yeah, auction expired, I just emailed the guy personally and talked to him. And he didn't want to let it go for the opening bid price, but I only ended up giving him a couple hundred bucks more and right. a wah-wah pedal and a reissue Phase 90 that I know <laughs> And so I got nice. the guitar for 1850 Right. And wow. I've been playing it ever since. What a great deal. Yeah. That's a, that's a lifetime guitar. Yeah, yeah, sure. and it's funny yeah. because I, I've played a lot of ES-175s and I've never played one that I've liked more than this one. So right. It, nice. It's funny, that, and these 50s ones are really light. They don't feel like newer ES-175. So I don't know if the top and the, like if the wood is thinner or what makes it lighter, if there's a different kind of wood than yeah. what they use now. But yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't even balance the same. Like what they're doing, you know. Yeah. That's why I chose the Sadowski because it basically has that lightness, that feeling of those early 175s in a modern guitar. Right, which used yeah. to be Jim's guitar, of course. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I know he still loved that guitar because there's some interview I read from later where he was at his apartment and he still had the 175 just collecting dust and he picked it up for a bit and was like yeah this is a really good guitar oh you know? man beautiful yeah. yeah I think he had done a lot of modifications to it though and just kind of retired it but but yeah that's they both have that like they're pretty resonant guitars acoustically for for laminate guitars mm -hmm. so for sure very happy and are I actually flat wound guy or are you you know I it's funny because I'm right now I'm a round wound guy but a couple weeks ago I was a flat wound guy and what I'm happened? still well I've been doing a lot of research into strings. There's a lot of bad information about jazz on the internet. Because <laughs> I think a lot of the people that talk on those forums are not deep enough into it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, no spend, maybe they someone, spend too much time on the forums. Yeah, like, like when they talk about Wes Montgomery's gear, they're always talking about the gear he used at the end of his life. Uh -huh. in, for instance, this pickup, this is a, I got this kind of because of Wes in a way. This is a replica of... Uh, the Alnico 5 pickup, which is the one that came between the P90 and the uh, the PAF humbucker. Mm -hmm. And this is what Wes would have used up to maybe 62, 63. And I really like those Riverside albums. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like on, uh, it, it's just got a, the difference between this and a P90, it's still a single coil. Unlike a P90 that has the, uh, the screws that are pole pieces touching the magnet underneath, this actually has the big Alnico 5 magnets as your pole pieces. More like a Strat pickup oh. or a Diarmond uh, Dynasonic, like in an early Gretsch guitar, okay. like Billy Bean played. Right, right. And to me, I still need to tweak it a bit because I think I might need to put some risers under it. Mm -hmm. It's a little low because you can see the pole pieces are sticking way out right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there's, a, there's sort of this crispiness 
to the attack that I notice on those West recordings, like like on Groove Yard and stuff that, with the Montgomery mm-hmm. Brothers. Yeah. Um, and on Bags Meets uh, Bags Meets West, that album. Yeah, is, uh, yeah. Th- those are definitely El Nico Five pickup albums. Same with uh, Moving Along, the ones where he's not playing the mm-hmm. the uh, bass guitar. Right, right. Yeah, like and it, it's this crispiness. Billy Bean has it. Yeah. And I've also moved to a, a much thinner pick. Really? Yeah. All in the same go with these strings? No, no, I've done... This has been over the last few years. Okay. But uh, I sometimes have multiple picks out on a gig. Like, if I'm going to play a ballad, maybe I want a fatter sound. If I'm going to, you know, play some notes that I just want more weight to. But I like the crispiness that this... uh, That you can hear the attack more. Yeah. You know, the beginning of that... uh, the opening of that Billy Bean uh, no, trio I don't, album? Oh, okay. Yeah. It's this tune motivation, but it's uh it's a Billy Bean tune. But that tune on that particular record called I think the Trio Rediscovered, uh it's just it's there's something about the attack that just was like, wow, that is such a hip tone. Cool. And he was playing through a little Ampeg jet, I'm pretty sure as well, because he said that in an interview that he had. Neat. He didn't know the model, but he described it as it just had a tone control and it was a little 112. So I'm pretty sure it was a jet. Um, so anyhow, I'm kind of going for that. Just, you know, checking out people. I emailed all sorts of string manufacturers. Right now I'm using pyramids, which are, uh, famous for being the strings that the Beatles used. Oh, wow. Although I think they used the flat wound ones and I've tried those, but I'm not hundred percent sold on them. Right. Are these a pure nickel? They're pure nickel yeah. round core. Yeah. Yeah. Like totally old school. You have to crimp them so that they don't, uh, lose their intonation and go oh, dead. Oh, nice. So, so they're pretty good, but, uh. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is the exact set for me. Still, mm-hmm. you're kind of a time traveler. Like I, you have a really old setup going on. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, it's an old setup, and uh, I, I guess the other thing for me, I know we're blabbing for a long time, but hopefully we have the time. Oh yeah, um, is that I really think that uh, what got me into playing jazz was the I hate to use the word purity because that can have negative connotations, but. Uh, there's something about just plugging into an amp. I mean, yeah, I have this EQ pedal, but it's really just kind of... It's part of It's exactly the circuit yeah. from an amp that yeah. I would use that's a little heavier. Mm-hmm. It's not really an effect, you know? So uh, I like the discipline of plugging in and just making that work. Mm-hmm. And uh, even that movement towards, like, arch tops, that, like these highly uh, expensive, handcrafted arch tops, I think the idea is great, but... Sometimes it seems like there's a, a trend towards making them a certain way as if it's an advancement. And the thing to me is that part of playing music for your life is that you have to make the instrument submit to your will. That's the discipline. Mm-hmm. And when, if you just keep making the instrument play easier and easier, eventually, it's almost like everything just eventually melts down to an instrument that plays itself, and I'm not interested in that. Right. You know, I'm really interested in like a certain tone that may have imperfections that I've grown to love because that's the defining sound of the classic music of this uh, of this style. Right. And that's kind of where I'm at. And I guess that spills over into other areas of my life. You know, like <laughs> suddenly I'm shaving with a 1950s razor. Are you really? Yeah. You know, like I'm a straight just, one of the. No, it's ones? a it's a it's a Gillette. Uh, safety razor but with like double-edged blades and stuff oh, okay. and, you know it's like uh, it's like not wanting to go to pizza pizza you want to go to uh, I don't know you want to go to some what's that place across from uh, it's on Ossington 
I'm not pizzeria sure. libretto. Oh, like, that. Like that choosing that over pizza. pizza. Right. And if you don't have the money for that, you just don't have pizza. Right. You're a man that likes fine things. Yeah. yeah. And if I don't have the money, I just yeah. don't have them right now. Yeah. yeah. Man, I really Absolutely. appreciate that uh, you got yourself a solo guitar gig. Ah, I can't wait to come yeah. check it out. I, I, I apologize that I haven't made it down yet. But, yeah, totally. It's, yeah. Been, it's been really fun. What day is that? Sunday? Or? Um, that's on Thursdays Thursday. and 10.30 uh, p.m. at Motel okay. Parkdale. Okay. What about you? Do you have any gigs coming up? Um, I have a few coming up a little later. Like a, I have a few dates at Duggan's Brewery in uh, late July, early August. Nice. No, Chris one Wallace, them, right? Yeah, Chris Wallace is gone for a while, so he threw me a couple of those. I have one with uh, Jake Wilkinson and John Meyer. I think that might be the last Wednesday of July. Mm -hmm. And then the next two weeks after that, Organ Trio with uh, Bernie Sinetsky and Morgan Childs. So, That's a nice group. Yeah, so I'm I'm, I'm familiar with that, that group. Yeah, 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 I've heard of that group. Great. Where are you guys at? That's at Duggins? That's at Duggins, yeah. Okay. So those are coming up, and then uh, I think there's a, a night I'm at Reposado in mid-July with, with Morgan, and is it John on that, too? John um, I think it's, that might be Jeff McLeod on organ. Oh, he's out of town. So oh, he's out of town? Yeah, I think it's okay. John on that. Sweet. But I don't know the exact date, but yeah. So it's nice. I'm getting some gigs just after being back a couple of weeks and uh, being away for an awful long time. Yeah. Great, man. Well, you sound great, yeah. so I'm sure you're going to have lots and lots of gigs. It's great. I hope so. The future um, is bright. Yeah. Let's play one more tune and uh, call it a day. Let's end with the ballad. Ballad. Yeah, we have to do a ballad. Two guitars is, is conducive to good ballad. Let's do a ballad. Like Darn That Dream? Perfect. Um, key? G? G. All right. Yeah. Just let me dry my fingers off again so I don't lose this pin. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, Slick. I heard these. I'm using a V pick too, which is, is weird. This is more modern. It's like some kind of acrylic or something. But mm. yeah, cool. I've heard that they're not supposed to be slippery. I'm having trouble today. <laughs> okay.
to get one of those harmonics things in before the Of course, of course. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tradition. Great, man. Well, thanks so much for getting yeah. together with me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. You sound great. All right. You too. Yeah. Good to be back. All right. You've been listening to the Body Electric Podcast with special guest Ben Bishop. We've got some great guests coming up, including Jesse Barksdale, uh, Ted Quinlan, and a special blues edition with uh, guitarist Brooke Blackburn. Um, if you have any questions for these guys, uh, you can ask me on Twitter or send me an email. Uh, the Twitter handle is at Nate Hiltz, and uh, the email is natehiltz at gmail.com. That's N-A-T-E-H-I-L-T-Z. I'll talk to you next week, and thanks for listening. <laughs>